This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you and CALCULATE for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that's qxmd.com apps. Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast Season 2. In this season, we're introducing our pop-up podcasts on various topics. Today's podcast is all about vital signs. I'm Stephanie Martin, and I'm joined by my partner, Suzanne McMurtry-Baird. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Stephanie. How are you? I'm great. I'm really curious. Why on earth did you pick vital signs for the topic of our pop-up podcast? Well, anybody who's ever heard me lecture, teach, talk, anything about, you know, obstetric care, I talk about vital signs a lot. And I think it was first uh, a topic for me when I had a student in my very first clinical group when I became a clinical instructor. And I was with the students all day. And at the end of the shift, we had our clinical meeting. And I said to, you know, the group, what did you learn today? And one of the students said, I learned that vital signs are vital. I love that. And I just was, I was like, that is so profound. Now I've asked people to cross stitch it for me. I got a sticker recently from somebody when I got through lecturing, I got it in the mail. It says vital signs are vital and they really are. And when you think about our patients in OB, we take so many vital signs. I mean, the frequency at which we take vital signs would rival an ICU or actually sometimes exceed ICU requirements. So it's, it's really important when we think about those vital signs, not just how frequent we are, they are, but especially in a high-risk patient, what are those values? So um, it, and especially if she's critically ill. And that's the, the, the point of, of this podcast, the vital signs are vital. Yeah, I think it's, you know, we take vital signs kind of for granted. We just take them and document them. And, you know, it's so nice when we have abnormals defined for each vital sign so that everybody taking care of the patient knows definitively, okay, this is abnormal and this requires some kind of action. Right. I mean, and I've been seeing in some protocols, guidelines lately that I've reviewed where instead of saying specific abnormal parameters that they want uh, reported or action taken for, they actually say percentages of, you know, an example of a drop in blood pressure of 15% or more. Well, I can say that's just not done clinically. And there's no electronic device that's giving you that percentage of drop. So, we really need to have specific abnormal parameters defined for each vital sign instead of just relying on math or percentage going by something like that. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think I could calculate 15% of 172. Yeah, maybe 10%, but 15 would maybe stretch <laughs> my mind. <laughs> you want to know my vital sign pet peeve? Yeah, what? When I get called with one vital sign. Ooh. Yeah, that's not fun. I mean, I really, you know, 
for those of you who are taking vital signs and calling vital signs, and and even those of us on the receiving end of that phone call, you've got to know them all. I mean, if I get called with just a blood pressure and no pulse, or just a pulse and no temperature or blood pressure or anything else with it, it's it's impossible to really form a differential and a plan of care. You've got to have the entire picture to be able to really understand what's going on. So with that in mind, I want you to go through these vital signs kind of one by one and talk about like, how does this matter? What's the relevance to an obstetric patient? Because, you know, you mentioned the ICU earlier, and I think sometimes we forget that we're taking care of women who are critically ill that might not have been labeled as critically ill because they're not in an intensive care unit. And so understanding these vital signs are so, so, so important, especially when, you know, you and I see all the time this normalizing the abnormal effect in obstetrics, you know, oh, she's got a low blood pressure because she's pregnant, for example. So, you know, and understanding these abnormal vital signs and what these thresholds are can, are, can help us really identify a maternal compromise earlier rather than later. So, you know, appropriate assessment at appropriate intervals, communicating them when they're abnormal, knowing when to have somebody at the bedside, and then really thinking through what all these abnormalities might mean and what's causing them. I mean, we can make a significant difference in maternal and and even neonatal outcomes. So let's start with heart rate. Talk to us about heart rate. Yeah, heart rate is such an important vital sign. And when you think about uh, heart rate being one of the two components of the formula for cardiac output, that's cardiac output equals heart rate times stroke volume. And when we think about cardiac output being survival, here's one of your two components of survival, not just for the mom, but for the baby as well. So, it is such an important vital sign. Uh, normals being 60 to 100 beats per minute. Now, some of you might think, well, that's so simple. We know that, Suzanne, you know, 60 to 100 is a normal heart rate. I say that because of what just Stephanie just said. We normalize a lot of uh, abnormal heart rates, especially in the tachycardia range. So a heart rate, any heart rate over a 100 beats per minute is considered tachycardia. And we need to look for, you know, that cause. Um, So when I say also, uh, you know, an abnormal vital signs, I'm talking about a sustained value. So I'm not talking about one heart rate that is 102. And heart rates that are going to go up, if you think about tachycardia, they're going to go up, you know, 70 beats per minute, 80, 90, 100, 110, 120, until we recognize and do something about it, if it's actually, you know, signifying, you know, a, a state that may be that the mom's compromised. So we, we want to watch trends and data, and we are looking at sustained values in the heart rate of 100 to be tachycardia. Uh, the thing I want to emphasize on tachycardia is the effect on filling time and how that might affect cardiac output too. So if I have a really high heart rate, then I'm going to have less time for the ventricles to fill. And and I'm going to also lose my atrial kick. So somewhere around a heartbeat of 140, my atrial kick starts to decrease. And that will decrease my cardiac output. So as we're sitting there thinking, okay, she's 
got 120 heart rate. That is just less filling time uh, for the ventricles to fill. And then cardiac output could start to be dropping as that heart rate goes up. And I think that it's important to think about it in that context when you think of cardiac output. So when we have cardiac uh, uh, tachycardia that's sustained, it's our responsibility then to consider the causes and search for that cause. And in our patient population, the OB patient, I always want us to consider intravascular volume status first. So hypovolemia is a, a very frequent cause of maternal tachycardia. And we want to look for other signs and symptoms uh, to make sure that that patient is not uh, decompensating because of hypovolemia. Because as hypovolemia occurs, her heart rate will increase and go on that trajectory of 80, 90, 100, 110, 120. And it'll keep increasing until we correct her intravascular volume status. And the reason that tachycardia results... uh, Uh, due to a a hypovolemic state is because of the decrease in stroke volume. So again, let's go back to that formula. Cardiac output equals heart rate times stroke volume. To uh, in order to compensate in a hypovolemic state or the stroke volume is low, the heart rate's going to increase. So this is a compensatory effect to keep the cardiac output up in normal range uh, for organ perfusion to occur. Um, if without that heart rate going up, then cardiac output then goes down. So this, again, compensatory from an intravascular uh, volume depletion, stroke volume drops to compensate, heart rate goes up. Yeah. I mean, it's always interesting to me how we're willing to be very comfortable calling a heart rate of 110 beats per minute or 120 beats per minute when a woman is laying in bed and we're, we're comfortable saying, oh, she's just nervous or upset or she's anxious. I mean, it's really hard to get your heart rate up that high, even if you're trying. You know, we all have smartwatches. We're all watching our heart rates all the time. It's hard to get your heart rate up there. But laying in bed, resting and having a heart rate of 110, 120 beats a minute. I mean, you really have to consider the potential cause. And pain and anxiety as a cause of tachycardia is a diagnosis of exclusion. That's the last thing on your list. You're looking for pathology first. So I totally agree. Low blood volume, hypovolemia is not should be number one on every obstetric providers list. Other things, I mean, it could be infection, she could be febrile, maybe you've given her a shot of terbutaline or something else that might increase her heart rate. You know, hypoxic patients, hypoxemic patients get tachycardic. They might even have an arrhythmia and you won't know that if you don't actually lay hands on the patient and either listen to her heart or feel her pulse to know if this is some uh, some sort of tachyarrhythmia that needs to be addressed. So you've got to rule, you know, you've got to really evaluate the patient and think critically, but you don't do that unless you actually consider the possibility that this resting increased heart rate is potentially a problem. Right, right. And if you have a patient who is tachycardic and you don't consider that cause, um, you know, I've seen some cases where uh, somebody will come in and say, well, we need to block her heart rate down. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, that, that, and that you, what you're doing is taking away that woman's compensatory mechanism to stabilize her cardiac output. And right. so if you do that, like it, let's say if you don't consider that this patient's hypovolemic, 
and she's got a pulse of 120 and you just don't like looking at a pulse of 120 and you give her a beta blocker, next thing that happens is her blood pressure plummets. Right. Or or you get to practice your CPR. So um, <laughs> you're right. And I say that jokingly, but it's not a joke. But it's true. But I've seen that so many times and and we treat a symptom instead of actually looking at the cause and tachycardia is a big one for us and obstetrics. So again, that we need to pay attention to that. Uh, I've got an, an example of that. Um, you know, let's say a patient hemorrhages. I mean, we see that a lot. Let's, let me see. Let's say she had a QBL of 1900. And now she's got um, a heart rate, you know, 132. She has low preload. And that's due to a low stroke volume. Um, that is her compensatory mechanism in this scenario to maintain a cardiac output to perfuse her organs. And so if you came in there with a beta blocker and blocked down that heart rate, uh, again, that organ perfusion is not just going to drop, but she's going to drop her pressure and then she'll become uh, decompensated even more. So uh, that can occur with you know, without volume resuscitating her. And that's the the treatment for a low stroke volume is giving her volume and her heart rate will come down. It's magic. So um, another example, though, you gave was for medication administration and with terbutaline. And certainly we would never want to give terbutaline with a heart rate over 120 or anything like that. Because again, once again, we're we're going to decrease our filling time and could drop our cardiac output. Um, but another common medication that we give sometimes that causes maternal tachycardia is a correction of blood pressure. So either a vasodilator or a vasoconstrictor. And it can cause a tachycardia. And let's say that is the medication of choice and you have a rebound tachycardia for that. That may be the appropriate med then to give it would be a beta blocker that then decrease her heart rate because otherwise your blood pressure is going to remain elevated which we'll get into in a minute so so that's my tachycardia bradycardia a sustained heart rate of less than 60 beats per minute and again if, if you bring that back to cardiac output heart rate times stroke volume the lower the heart rate the lower the cardiac output unless the stroke volume increases. So um, that let me make that point real clear, but that can only occur to a certain point. So the heart can only pump out a certain amount in every patient. So that's going to be different for every patient in every clinical condition. Um, but in general sense, the lower the heart rate, the lower the cardiac output. Um, now in our, again, patient population, bringing it back to obstetrics, we don't see bradycardia too often Unless the woman has a heart block, again, which you are not going to see unless you actually put your hands on the patient, put her on an ECG monitor and have that diagnosed. Or if she's in excellent physical condition, I've seen that sometimes in some of our really uh, amazing athletes. You know, they may run a heart rate in the 50s normally, even during pregnancy. Uh, but again, that's just not very frequent that we see that um, too often. And then the other scenario that I can think of is if we've given a medication, something like a high dose of narcotics, and she's just like uber chill now, then maybe her heart rate goes below 60, but 
I would definitely investigate what that went with, you know, so make sure that it's not something else and that she's not uber chill for another reason. (laughs) Right. That's that's a great example. Right. That's a great example of where you need more than one vital sign. Exactly. Right. So you're not going to just look at a heart rate. Right. Right. I mean, a heart rate of 55 with a blood pressure of 120 over 70 is different than the patient with a heart rate of 55 and a blood pressure of 80 over 40. Exactly. Completely different patients. I know, because bradycardia could be, when you think about it, could be the end point for a patient who is no longer able to compensate. Because, again, that's the important part of watching those trends in heart rate, too. If you've got had a patient that's been really tachycardic and then now she's on her way down, that's a scary scenario, uh, yeah, just meaning that next, that patient, yeah, can't compensate. Stops. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah. Okay, Suzanne, next up is your favorite vital sign, the missing in action, the MIA vital sign. Yeah, respiratory rate. I often joke this is the missing vital sign because it doesn't flow over from a machine into the electronic medical record. And I, I've gone through cases where I've looked and looked and looked, and there's not one respiratory rate taken during the entire time that the patient is in labor and delivery or on postpartum. It's just not flowing over, and people, nurses, uh, CRNAs, CNAs, whoever's with the patients, forgetting to document that respiratory rate. And it's such an important um, parameter to look at. And it's one of the vital signs that changes first when the mother becomes decompensated. And the one thing that I want to uh, highlight with respiratory rate, the use of a pulse oximeter does not substitute for taking a respiratory rate. Absolutely. So, I mean, just because you are satting 99% does not mean that you do not need to take a respiratory rate. There. They're looking at two different things. You know, oxygen saturation is completely different than respiratory rate. It's, a, it's like a, it, you're, that's just another vital sign. Um, but respiratory rate is just as important as that pulse oximetry value. So the patient can still have maternal uh, decompensation uh, with a, a fairly good pulse oximeter value, and she could be showing you signs of decompensation. So Let's talk about some of the abnormal values. Uh, First, let's start with tachypnea. So any respiratory rate greater than 20 is considered tachypnea. Now, a lot of times people will say, well, she's pregnant. Again, try breathing 24 times a minute at rest. That's abnormal. So any sustained respiratory rate greater than 20 is still considered tachypnea, pregnant or not. Um, The question is, what is the cause? And as that respiratory rate increases, thinking about what are those causes and could this be changing my blood gas values? Because it sure can. You're blowing off a lot more CO2. You're going to have changes not only in CO2, but you'll also have changes in your pH. So some of the causes that are more common in our pregnant population uh, to think about sepsis, you know, that is a early warning sign in sepsis of a sustained respiratory rate of over 20. Metabolic acidosis. Uh, Let's think about your DKA patient or a patient who's diabetic that comes in and has a high respiratory rate. She has metabolic acidosis. She's going to be breathing really fast. 
and that is a, a sign of DKA. Um, then we also think about our respiratory complications. Most common would be pulmonary edema and then also pulmonary embolus. So think about why is your respiratory rate so high and, and search for that cause just as you would um, a, a patient that had a high heart rate. And in another podcast, you know, one of the, the discussions that we talk about is reasons for intubation. And one of those is if a patient has such a, a lingering elevation of a respiratory rate um, and she can't uh, sustain that, that rate of breathing, it's changing her blood gas values. So check out that other podcast uh, that we have on our, our website. So can you talk a minute about respiratory rate in a laboring patient? Because I get a lot of pushback for that. She's in labor. I can't do a respiratory rate. Is it important? Absolutely, it's important. Um, you know, a lot of our decompensated moms start out as low risk. So, um, you, you know, you could be in the tub. <laughs> you can have uh, this beautiful low risk um patient laboring and she can still decompensate. So respiratory rate is just as important again as that heart rate. Um, and what we would want to do is check a respiratory rate, measure it in between uterine contractions. Now, certainly uh, if she's in a lot of pain and sh or she's doing some of that, the labored breathing uh, that may be associated with uh, some of our breathing patterns for laboring patients, um, do that. We're going to take that respiratory rate in between those breathing patterns. So not certainly during the rat, more rapid, shallow breaths that a woman may take if she's, you know, laboring uh, pretty hard. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the blood pressure now. Like, and I, we saved this one, you know, for later in the podcast, because I think many folks feel pretty comfortable that they would recognize an abnormal blood pressure, but I suspect that they probably can't really explain what the abnormal blood pressure means. So let me give you an example. Um, I had a patient who was, uh, has renal insufficiency, renal failure, who's been on hemodialysis, who came to see me in the office literally directly following her dialysis session. You want to guess what her blood pressure was? Hmm. Let me think. I could either go in a low range or I could go in a high range. I, I'm guessing it's one of the two, either really, really low or really, really high. It was really, really high. Her systolic was 190. Wow. She'd been discharged from hemodialysis to come straight to my office. And hemos, dialysis is outpatient. She was getting daily dialysis, by the way. And that systolic of 190 told me right there that the people in charge of her dialysis probably did not understand the pregnancy changes and the massive increased volume and the need to take off more volume in pregnant women because they have more volume and she's not able to get rid of it herself. And the more volume she has, the higher her systolic blood pressure is going to be. So I found that very interesting. Um, so I want you to kind of go through and help us understand how to interpret the different components of the blood pressure and what we can learn, what kind of information we can glean from a blood pressure reading. It's, it's pretty elegant when you really stop and think about it. It really is. And whenever I teach this, I always jokingly say that somebody, when you go back to work and you start talking about the three components of blood pressure and what those are and 
gee, I wonder which component is out of whack that's causing her blood pressure to be elevated. They know you've been to a conference or you've listened to the Critical Care Obstetrics podcast. So (laughs) anyway, (laughs) we teach this the same, but blood pressure is really a formula. It's stroke volume times heart rate times systemic vascular resistance. So any one of these three components, stroke volume, heart rate, or systemic vascular resistance can affect your blood pressure values. So let's go over those and just remind everybody what they all mean. So let's start with the systolic pressure since that's the top number and we always think of that. Systolic pressure really relates to the contraction of the ventricles and ejection of that bolus of blood into the arterial system. And when we think of systolic blood pressure, I want you to remember that this reflects intravascular volume. So think volume with systolic pressure. Uh, This is a real key point to remember um, because blood pressure, again, that stroke volume is affecting that systolic number and affecting our blood pressure. So normal systolic blood pressure is 90 to 140. And I know that there's, you know, some lowering of that when we're talking about diagnosing chronic hypertension, but we're going to stick for this purpose of 90 to 140, because I know that many of y'all haven't made that change either in your clinical practice or in your documentation system. But systolic, normal 90 to 140. Think volume. Switching to the diastolic, diastolic pressure relates to relaxation of the ventricles and runoff of blood through the vascular system. So this is primarily determined by systemic and pulmonary vascular resistance. And a normal value of diastolic pressure is 60 to 90. And that doesn't change. Again, that's, that is the normal value, 60 to 90. When you think of the combination of these with a mean arterial pressure, the mean arterial pressure is reflective of systemic vascular resistance or the resistance that blood meets as it exits the left ventricle. And normal is greater than 65 millimeters of mercury. And that does not change just because the patient's pregnant. So a mean arterial pressure of greater than or equal to 65 millimeters of mercury is always the end end point of a mean arterial pressure. Even when you have lower systolic and diastolic blood pressures uh, in the second trimester of pregnancy, that mean arterial pressure uh, does not go below below 65 without classifying that as a hypotensive episode. I think that's really a key point to reinforce because, you know, those who are not familiar with taking care of pregnant patients, and even some of us that are, are kind of easy to say, oh, her mean arterial pressure is low because she's pregnant. And the mean arterial pressure should always be 65 and above, even if she's in the second uh, trimester of pregnancy. So for example, a clinical application of this, you know, most of the sepsis guidelines now set a target of having the patient's mean arterial pressure above 65. um, And that still applies to a pregnant patient. There's no reason to change that threshold just because she's pregnant, because 
your your mean arterial pressure really does not significantly change in pregnancy, even though we see uh, a lowering of the blood, the individual blood pressure measurements overall. That's right. And we don't really have an upper limit that we um, strive to. We, you know, when you're thinking about a hypertensive patient, you're really focusing on uh, managing that systolic or diastolic pressure rather than a mean arterial pressure. Um, but for the lower end, that it's that greater than or equal to 65 millimeters of mercury. So it's such an important um, point. And then last component that I want to talk about with blood pressure, and we don't really think about this one too frequently, and I, I want to put it in your mind, uh, is pulse pressure. So pulse pressure is um, often used in acute care uh, settings because it reflects um, stroke volume. So the higher the pulse pressure, uh, the higher the stroke volume, the more narrow the stroke, the pulse pressure, the more uh, decreased your stroke volume is. So it is reflection of your stroke volume. And the formula is really simple. Like I can do this math usually. Systolic minus the diastolic pressure. That's your pulse pressure. So really the pulse pressure is dependent upon two factors. Number one, your stroke volume and your arterial wall elasticity. So since OB pressures are usually young and healthy, you know, we see, you know, some significance in changes with stroke volume. As stroke volume goes up in pregnancy, we can see the changes in this pulse pressure. Um, but we don't want to just look at the pulse pressure again in isolation, just like we wouldn't in any of the other vital signs. We want to look at trends and data and then what goes with that parameter. So think of it as this way. It's just one value, but as blood volume is ejected from uh, with each heartbeat, that stroke volume, um, that increase in stroke volume, the pulse pressure increases, it widens. So as stroke volume falls, the pulse pressure becomes more narrow. The normal range is going to be between 40 and 60 millimeters of mercury. So as I look at a patient, I get her blood pressure. Let's say um, it's 120 over 80. Her pulse pressure would then be 40. Um, so that's a pretty simple formula. Now that's, I that's look a at a formula I can do. Yeah, me too. That's I can all. do systolic minus diastolic, but I can't do 15%. Right. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I can't either. Well, let's look at values. So if I think of a normal range somewhere between 40 and 60, if I look at trends and I start seeing her pulse pressure fall, it becomes very narrowed and low, like less than 30 then I'm going to start looking for other signs and symptoms that go along with a narrowed pulse pressure of less than 30 because that may be a, a sign of shock uh, in a patient who has low cardiac output. So an example, a blood pressure of 80 over 60. The systolic is really low, so that seems like her blood pressure, her systolic, her stroke volume is really low. That systolic pressure is lower and the pulse pressure is narrowed. So what goes with it? And in our patient population with a narrowed pulse pressure less than 30, again, I think of hypovolemia and I look for the cause. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it could be blood loss. It could be septic shock. I mean, there's a lot of different things it could be, but I would put hypovolemia from hemorrhage and septic shock right at the top of the list if I have a narrow pulse pressure. Yeah, and it's just something that sometimes we don't really think of. 
And if you think of the opposite of having an extremely high pulse pressure, uh, say a, a pulse pressure greater than 65, then I'm thinking hypervolemia. So my stroke volume would be very high. My preloads would be high. And I would look for the cause as that pulse pressure widens and gets um, over 65 to 70 millimeters of mercury. Yeah, and one of our colleagues, uh, Mike Foley, who is also passionate about critical care obstetrics, talks about this, and and I love his teaching approach to understanding pulse pressure, so I, I'll share it, but he, he describes it as a the speed limit on the freeway. So if you think of it in terms of, okay, let's say the speed limit on the freeway is, you know, 55 to 65 miles an hour. Okay, hopefully it's faster than that where you are, but let's just say it's 55 to 65 miles an hour. If I'm living in that range, then my pulse pressure is probably okay. But if my pulse pressure gets down below, let's say 40, and I'm driving 35, 30, 25 miles an hour on the freeway, there's a real problem. That's not going to last very long. There's something's going to happen. You're going to crash. And the same thing if it gets too high. If you've got pulse pressures 75, 85, the higher it gets, the more dangerous it gets. And that indicates you've got excess volume. So when trying to remember what's a normal pulse pressure, think of it in terms of how fast is it safe to drive on the freeway. And getting too slow, it's a problem. And getting too fast, it's a problem. So I, my patient, I love that. And that isn't, it's, it's an easy way to remember it, right? So my patient that I was telling you about earlier, I didn't give you her diastolic pressure. So her systolic was 190 and her diastolic was 105. So her pulse pressure was 85, extremely high, which relates all to volume. This woman needed more fluid removed um, from her dialysis. And so we promptly made those arrangements for it to happen and gave her some antihypertensive medicines. But um, yeah, we did calculate a pulse pressure right off the bat. Yeah, it didn't have anything to do with the, probably the other two components of her blood pressure. It had to do with her stroke volume that was causing her blood pressure to be high. And Yep. In this case, it was all volume. We knew that. So yeah. that was clear. And what you'd about temperature? Been, yeah, you'd been to a course, right? I'd been to a course. I learned from you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, temperature. Yeah, that's another MIA vital sign sometimes. It's so important, especially in a, a patient who's ruptured or has other symptoms that may indicate, you know, that she has a fever, um, maybe she's tachycardic, has tachypnea, you know, what goes with it? I always check my temperature. That's an easy, easy uh, rule out right there. So checking that temperature and making sure that we record those because sometimes they don't flow over into your EMR. So let's talk about a woman who has abnormal temperature, high or low. We need to consider really now at this point the effects of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, you know, that favorite topic of everybody. But let's let's just make it simple and talk about how it affects, you know, the effects of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve with hyperthermia and with hypothermia. So if a patient has a fever, she's hyperthermic, that shifts the oxyhemoglobin uh, dissociation curve to the right. What that means is it allows the release of oxygen off of hemoglobin at the tissue level for utilization. And that's really important because if you think about a patient who is febrile, she needs that increased utilization of oxygen. Her, her oxygen utilization jumps up there uh, a tremendous percentage, and that's due to the increased metabolic demands of, of that fever. So... Um, 
that's really important that it works that way so that oxygen can be utilized uh, as needed. However, if you think back to our high-risk or critically ill woman, she may not tolerate that increase in oxygen consumption because that may ultimately lead to a depletion of oxygen availability. So we've got to manage that hyperthermia patient because uh, in a high-risk or critically ill patient, she will deplete her oxygen uh, with too much consumption. And, um, and if the mom is, remember, if the mom is hyperther- has hyperthermia, the fetus is going to be tachycardic as well. So that's another clinical clue there. Take a temperature, rule out fever, make sure that that's not a cause. Now, just the opposite, hypothermia shifts the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve to the left. So that's going to cause increased affinity. In other words, increased attraction of oxygen and hemoglobin, making it difficult for the oxygen to release at the tissue level. And the tissues can still then become hypoxic and ischemic and dysfunctional if you keep a patient cold. And uh, one scenario in our patient population in OB that I think of with hypothermia is a patient coming out of the OR, or she's in the OR for a prolonged period of time, or she gets to pack you and she's hypothermic. Uh, Another scenario is a a patient that you've done a lot of volume um, infusion. So IV fluids are cold. They're not at, you know, room temperature is not body temperature, and um, or she's had massive transfusion uh, protocol, so blood is cold. So important to remember to warm your fluids and warm your blood so that you don't cause hypothermia that increases morbidity and mortality because oxygen's not released at the tissue level. Um, and whenever I also see hypothermia in our patient population, again, I think cause, cause, cause and look for that cause. Yeah, I mean, I think people sometimes don't realize, you know, because we do these, we do C-sections all day, every day. And, but having the abdomen open to the room, the longer it's open, the more body heat the patient loses. So, you know, in recovery room, having patients be, you know, cold is not an unusual scenario, but you need to be suspicious that something else could be going on. And my brain always goes to sepsis. I'm always worried about the patient potentially being infected and septic as the cause of her hypothermia. So, um, you know, really important to remember. And the other comment I wanted to make is, you know, you commented that fetal tachycardia is associated with the mom being febrile, and it absolutely is. But the fetus is actually in a warmer environment than the mom, at least in terms of the temperature that we're taking on the mom. And so sometimes the fetal tachycardia will precede the maternal fe- uh, documentation of fever. So, you know, it, it can, if you're paying attention and you see the fetal heart rate starting to be tachycardic, you can be suspicious that maybe mom is going to be tachycardic soon. We just haven't yet manifested it yet. So, you know, really important sign. Yeah, I, that's one of the things that we need to rule out. And I I see it sometimes, delay, you know, delayed, like you said, sometimes by an hour or so. And so I may take a temp and I may see it like 99, one hour, and I'll make sure that I take it the next hour so that I make sure that it's, you know, I'm ruling out, you know, any kind of febrile situation. So, right. Yeah. So important. So 
In summary, you know, I want to keep saying this, vital signs are vital. It's such a, again, profound statement from Suzanne Student many years ago. It's such an essential component of our assessment, and we need to do full sets of vital signs. Recognizing any abnormal vital sign is important. We never want to normalize the abnormal uh, vital sign. Once we have a sustained abnormal vital sign, communicate the abnormal vital signs in a timely manner. Call the provider. And that, again, is one of the key components of early warning signs of compromise in the mom. So it's important that we define what those early warning signs are in our clinical practice, notify the provider, and then the provider come to the bedside. Uh, that, that can't be left out. The provider come to the bedside and then together we discuss the cause of the abnormal vital sign and we document that. So not just taking vital signs or having them flow into our flow sheet, paying attention to them. And then once we have an abnormal vital sign, we want to increase the frequency of our assessment of other vital signs. So um, again, depending on that range, you know, I, I'm going to I'm going to take my vital signs again in five minutes or 15 minutes. And again, communicating those, you know, recognizing those abnormal ranges and getting the provider to the bedside is so important. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsinob.com. For a list of references on today's topic, go to the Read app at qxmd.com slash apps. This podcast and music was produced by Austin Bear. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please reach out to nashvillepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that is nashvillepodcast at gmail.com.